Preachers can fall into the rut on preaching on whatever keeps the congregation happy. If you keep them happy from Sunday to Sunday, they'll be more likely to come back. This sermon series is and has been different. Instead of falling back to the familiar narratives that keep us smiling on our way out of the sanctuary, we are confronting some of the greatest controversies facing the church. There is a better than good chance that I have or I will say something from this pulpit during the series that you won't agree with. And if and when that happens, I encourage you to stay after worship. Join us for lunch and continue the conversation. We can only grow as Christians in community, and that requires some honesty, humility, and dialogue. Today, we continue with the topic of war. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The airfield was remarkably dark in the middle of the night, so the commanding officer turned on the floodlights for posterity. There were so many people wandering around the field that night that the captain had to lean out of his window of the aircraft to direct the bystanders out of the way of the propellers before takeoff. Though he did have time to offer a friendly wave to the untold sums of photographers who were there before departing. The flight itself lasted six hours, and they flew through nearly perfect conditions. At 8.15 in the morning, they finally arrived directly above their destination, or better yet, above their target of Hiroshima, and the bomb was released. It fell for a total of 43 seconds before it reached the height for perfect and maximum destruction, and then it was detonated. In a fraction of a second, 70,000 people were killed. And another, another 70,000 were injured for the rest of their lives. At about the same time that bomb was detonated, President Truman was on the battle cruiser named Augusta. And when the first report came in about the success of the atomic bomb, Truman turned to a group of sailors on his right and he said, This is the greatest thing in history. This is the greatest thing in history. We as American Christians, we have a problem with war. Historically, the early church and Christians did not engage in war. They believed their convictions and following Christ's commands prevented them from waging violence against others. And frankly, they were being persecuted and killed at such a rate that they didn't have time to think about fighting in wars. Nor were militaries particularly interested in having Christians fight for them, you know, because of the whole they pray for their enemies thing. But then Constantine came onto the scene, following Jesus turned into Christendom, and everything changed. With Christianity as the state-sanctioned religion, Rome could tell its citizens to fight and kill, and they did. But still... There have always been those who respond to war throughout the church differently. 
There are pacifists who believe conflict is unwarranted and should be avoided at all costs. There are those who believe in the just war theory and that there can be a moral response to war with justifiable force. And still yet there are others who believe in the blank check model where they are happy to support those in charge of the military without really questioning who they are killing or why. And we might not realize it, but most American Christians believe in the blank check model and that our government regularly deploys troops and drones to attack and kill people all over the world. And we rarely even bat an eye. So long as we feel safe, we are happy to support those who are leading without worrying about it. But as Christians, Jesus commands us to love our enemies and pray for the people who persecute us. To be clear, this is not just a nice invitation that you get to hear about from the pulpit. It's not a call to a particular type of ministry. We like imagining the white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus with open arms who loves us and expects the minimum in return. But more often than not, Jesus commands his disciples to do something to live a radical life at odds with the status quo. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Anybody can respond to love with love, but what good does it do to only love the people who love you in return? Instead, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is our command, and it is also our dilemma. Because Jesus commands us to love our enemies and love our neighbors. But what are we to do when our enemies are killing our neighbors or our neighbors are killing our enemies? Is there really such a thing as a just war? Are we called to remain pacifists even when innocent lives are being taken? Was it okay for us to take boys from the likes of Virginia and send them to Vietnam to kill and be killed? Should we send our military to Syria to kill And be killed. This is the controversy of war. War, a state of armed conflict between two groups, is like an addictive drug. It gives people something worth dying and killing for. It often increases the economic wealth and prosperity of our country. It achieves for our nation all that a political ideal could ever hope for. Because citizens no longer remain indifferent to their national identity, but every part of the land brims with unified life and activity. It's one of the few things that can always bring Republicans and Democrats together. There is nothing wrong with America that war cannot cure. When the North and the South were still economically and relationally divided after the Civil War, it was World War I that brought us back together as a country. When we were deep in the ravages of the Great Depression, it was World War II that delivered us into the greatest economic prosperity we had ever experienced. When we were despondent after our failures in Vietnam and our subsequent shameful treatment of veterans, the supposed weapons of mass destruction in Iraq gave us every reason to rally behind our country. But we don't like talking about death. We don't like talking about war. That's why the least attended worship services every year are Ash Wednesday and Good Friday when we can do nothing but talk about death. But war commands and demands our allegiance. It is the fuel that turns the world. It has been with humanity since the very beginning. And Jesus 
has the gall to tell us to love and pray for our enemies. To follow Jesus, to be disciples of the living God, requires a life of pacifism. And it's not just one of the ways we can respond to war, it is the way. And yet pacifism is a privilege of the powerful. It is remarkably easy for me to stand in this pulpit in the beauty of the Shenandoah Valley and preach to you about the virtues of pacifism because no one is dropping bombs on our picturesque community. We are not at risk for an invasion from a foreign oppressor. It is really easy to be a pacifist in America. And we will never get anywhere near a kingdom of peace if pacifists like me keep perceiving themselves as superior or entitled. Otherwise, people in the military who return from conflict will return as those did from Vietnam to a nation that does not understand. War is complicated, it's ugly, it's addictive. It reveals our sinfulness in a way that few controversies can. It illuminates our lust for blood and retribution. It offers a view into our unadulterated obsession with the hoarding of natural resources. It conveys our frightening disregard for the sanctity of life. It is our sinfulness manifest in machine guns and atomic weapons. It is the very depth of our depravity. Even the word war fails to express the sinfulness of the thing. We so quickly connect the word war with all the righteous outcomes of war. We believe we fought the civil war to free the slaves, when in fact it had far more to do with economics. We believe we fought World War II to save the Jews, when in fact it had far more to do with seeking revenge against the Japanese. We believe we went to war in the Middle East with terrorism because of September 11th, but it had a lot to do with long-standing problems and our unrelenting desire for oil. Can you imagine how differently we would remember the wars of the past if we stopped calling them wars and called them something else? Like World Massacre II, or the Vietnam Annihilation, or Operation Desert Carnage. On August 6, 1945, we dropped the first atomic bomb on the city of Hiroshima in order to end the bloodiest world war the world had ever seen. With the push of a button, we exterminated 70,000 people in an instant. And our president called it the greatest thing in history. Truman himself was a lifelong Baptist and was supported by the overwhelming majority of American Christians, most of whom expressed little misgivings about the first atomic bomb. But that very bomb is the sign of our moral incapacitation and the destruction of our faithful and loving imagination. For we Christians know, deep in the marrow of our souls, that the greatest thing in the history of the world is not the bomb that indiscriminately murdered 70,000 people, but the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ forever will be the greatest thing in history of the world because Jesus broke the chains of sin and death and commanded us to follow him. 
Jesus Christ, Son of Man and Son of God, embodied a life of non-violent pacifism that shakes us to the core of our being and convicts our sensibilities. There is, of course, the privilege of pacifism and its ineffectiveness when combated by the evil of the world. Pacifism will always pale in comparison to the immediacy of armed military conflict. But it is and will always be the closest example of what we have to what it means to live like Jesus. And Jesus? He wasn't particularly interested in offering us the path of least resistance towards salvation. Instead, he told us to take up our own cross and follow him. So where does that leave us? What are we to do and who are we to be about the controversy of war? Right now, countless innocent lives are being killed in Syria daily as a result and consequence of war. For years, Syrians have struggled to escape their war-torn homes and find a new beginning somewhere else, but many of them are still there. The United States has largely remained uninvolved in the conflict due to diplomatic and militaristic complications, so I thought it would be the perfect example to bring up this week in one of our Bible studies regarding the moral responsibility of our country when others are at war? Should we send troops to Syria in order to protect and prevent the loss of innocent lives? Or should we remain isolated from the conflict entirely? And then I put the question on the group and I said, what would be a Christian response to what's happening in Syria? We could take in more refugees, someone said. Another, we can advocate for better responses out of our politicians. And still yet someone else said, we can pray about it. Then I said, well, what if the United Methodist Church announced that it was sending 5,000 missionaries to Syria tomorrow with food and water and first aid equipment? We know how to send missionaries. We do it all the time. And someone responded by saying, we can't do that. They'd be easy targets. I'll admit that we can't do that, but not because they would be easy targets. We can't go there and do that because we no longer have a church that produces people who can do something that bold. But we once did. God in Christ came in order to reconcile the world through a strange thing called the cross. The living God through the Messiah spoke difficult commands and orders to those first disciples and to us. And they're things that we still struggle with each and every day. But God, God was bold enough to send his son to die in order to save us. Not by storming the temple with, with swords and shields. Not by overthrowing the Roman Empire and instituting democracy. But with a slow and nonviolent march to the top of a hill with a cross on his back. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen. Would you please pray with me? God, in Scripture we read about a time, a time in the future when the lion will lay with the lamb. We read about a day where you will make all things new, when death and dying will cease, when tears will fall no more. Wars will cease. And God, if we're honest, we want that day today. 
We want the world to be filled with peace. We want all of the lions to lay with the lambs. We want no one to fear for their life. But this world remains broken. It remains fueled and filled by sin. So we pray, O Lord, that you would help us to discern what we are to do and more importantly, who we are to be. We pray that you would give us the strength and the courage to pray for and love our enemies. And that we would do everything in our power to end the very existence of war. Amen.